CPA Charge is the payment solution designed specifically for the accounting industry. It is trusted by over 150,000 professionals, recommended by more than 35 state CPA societies, and is the only payment solution offered as a member benefit of the AICPA. Stay tuned to hear more from our sponsor, CPA Charge, later in the episode. And to learn how, as a listener of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, you can get six months with no monthly fee. And that's that. And this is this whole, this, even though it seems like it's not fair, well, he's a bajillionaire. But if you and I have, we have a little bit of gains in the, the stock market went up a little bit. Maybe our 401ks grew a little bit. Yeah. We don't want to get taxed on our little bit of gain. Exactly. And that's the conversation that has been going on with like tax Twitter is like, yeah, if you if you change these laws to get the rich, you're going to you're going to create lots of problems for the middle class, too, because taxing unrealized capital gains as Oregon Senator Ron Wyden wants to do. I mean, Elizabeth Warren wants to do that. Bernie Sanders wants to do that. That's the definition of a wealth tax. Basically, you could create some real, real problems for everybody. Today is Monday, June 14th. This is the Cloud Accounting Podcast. I'm Blake Oliver. And I'm David Leary. Blake, guess what? What? My recording studio is almost done. I think I'll be recording it next Saturday when we record the podcast. You're not there now. I'm not there now, but right now I'm actually in New York City. What are you doing in New York? I traveled to New York City for Melio. So Melio finally opened their office. They have a a whole entire floor of a WeWork and about 120 employees are all here. Uh, some, some of our team from Israel came in. So our founders are all here and it's a big week of meetings and kickoff. And it's kind of, a, it's actually amazing to like see people face to face. It's like a real back to normal situation. And you started your job at Melio, what, like right before the pandemic, you were driving in an Uber to the airport and then they called you from Israel and said, don't come. Don't fly to Israel because they just lock the country down and you and turned then, around. And then the US, we locked down whatever the week after that or right. what have you. But the week before that, I actually went to New York City to the New York City office and Melia was still teeny. There was 10, 11, 12 people here at the US office when I came in. So, I, so those are the only people you've really ever met in person. The rest of the team, and, and it's like, what, hundreds of people now. Yeah, I are, think there's 200 now in the US and 125 in Tel Aviv now. Yeah, it's that's over crazy. 50 people. Wow. Like overnight. And <laughs> it's funny to like where they were. I remember when I came in here, it was, you know, I'm fragile. I'm from Arizona and it was, it was January. So I was freezing when I came and visited like that, you know, end of January, first mm-hmm. week of February uh, of 2020. And I just remember distinctly how teeny things were. And the, the same guy was having to manage the space heater or the Wi-Fi. And if you had like too many space heaters turned on, the Wi-Fi would cut out and then we flip the breaker. And like, the, so to see where like Melio came from, from that, from an office. And then today you have 110, 120 people here at this new building. It's just amazing to, to see that difference. So it, but it is, it is for all of you listening, it is amazing to be around coworkers again. People aren't wearing masks. It's kind of an amazing situation. And you can imagine for a moment, David Leary crammed into one of those phone booths in a WeWork with his microphone and his laptop somehow perched together on that little tiny table they give you. 
Well, I, I did ask. I, I actually tried to be like, does the WeWork building have a recording studio in any way, shape, or form? This one doesn't, but there's another one a couple streets away, but it was too much work. I, I love the podcast no. and I love our listeners, but to get on another subway just to go record the podcast was just a lot of work. I should record it on the subway. That would have been fun. Well, uh, it's uh, great to talk to you again this week, David. Lots to discuss. Where do you think we should start? I've got a story about a bill in Congress called the Accounting STEM Pursuit Act, which would amend the Student Support and Academic Enrichment Grant Program to promote career awareness in accounting as part of a well-rounded STEM educational experience. STEM being, uh, I think it's science, technology, engineering, and math. They're going to try to add accounting to it. Accounting could be part of STEM in the U.S. And this is very exciting to me because... We have ignored accounting in a lot of business subjects as as part of this push to get kids to you know, do more practical stuff, right? So they can have actually good paying jobs when they <laughs> go to school and maybe get them interested in these majors in college. I, I'm really excited. So the bill is sponsored by Victoria Sparts, Republican of Indiana, and Haley Stevens, Democrat of Michigan. It's really important at this point. Accounting, as we all know, is facing a huge talent shortage. Um, I mean, we'll talk more about the talent shortage that is basically affecting everyone from restaurants to professional services firms. Uh, and so it's really important that we we push uh, to do as much as we can to get more people into accounting as as kids, right? As high school students. It's interesting to find an article like this because I actually came across an article, but I did not save it or bring it to the show. And now I cannot find the article. But I saw an article. It was either in New Zealand or Australia. But they're actually removing accounting from the educational curriculum. And so, it, it, it's being replaced with so what's being replaced with uh, more um, mindfulness type classes. Mm. And then they're rolling accounting now as part of general business, civics course type of curriculum. So people will get like two or three weeks of accounting and that'll be it. So we're actually ahead in some in some in some respect from Australia. You said it was Australia. Was it New Zealand? I, I, I was down under. I just don't okay. know for sure which where it mm. was. But it yeah. But I just I, I happened to just. It's funny because I, I saw it, but I, I was like, okay, that's interesting. And I just moved on. But I didn't know I didn't know what the opposite was happening here this week. I would have brought this story if I would have caught that news. So here's a quote from Representative Sparts, who's one of the two sponsors. I think she's yeah the Republican sponsor. She says, quote, as a CPA who worked in a variety of industries, taught accounting at college and started my own business, I understand the importance of finance and accounting skills for our students, regardless of which endeavor they pursue in life. I am happy to join Representative Stevens in leading this bipartisan legislation. And specifically what the bill does is it adds, quote, activities to promote the development, implementation and strengthening of programs to teach accounting unquote, to the list of allowable uses of grant funding under the Student Support and Academic Enrichment Grant Program. So basically, schools can get grant money for teaching accounting. The AICPA has supported the legislation. The Center for Audit Quality is supporting it. The National Association of Black Accountants and the National Academy Foundation are all supporting it. Here's a quote from Susan Coffey, CEO of Public Accounting at the AICPA. She said, the accounting profession has always been a leader in using and developing technology to make informed decisions, solve complex problems, and improve the delivery of audit, finance, and tax services. As the profession continues to apply advanced technology and technology-enabled techniques, it's never been a more exciting time to be an accounting professional. And 
I don't always agree with the ICPA, but I agree with that. It really is an exciting time to be an accountant. It makes me wonder, I mean, especially, you know, now that you're in Arizona, you're probably familiar with the the whole chartered system of schools, right? Uh, the, the school choice and all of this, you know, it's not, I don't want to get into politics on uh, my beliefs on public education, but it makes me wonder, like, could there be a charter school that really just focuses in on accounting? And would there, would there be enough people opting in to make that a viable school? Would, would there be enough kids, mm-hmm. you know, high school age kids to go to a charter school that has a focus or an emphasis on accounting? Like that's designed so that you can then go get your, you know, bachelor's and, and just go straight into like accounting and know, I mean, you, you, you'd be so well prepared because nobody does that. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Rewind. Imagine if a meteorite wiped out into its server. It's extremely unlikely, but if it did happen, Intuit would be able to restore all your data and everyone else's that was lost. Rewind has built a backup solution for data loss situations that are way more likely to occur to your client's data. Malicious attacks, buggy apps, disgruntled clients, and of course, ourselves. Human error, the number one reason people lose data. Say goodbye to making manual copies of clients' files, CSV exports, or storing redundancies on hard drives. Rewind is introducing a new way of protecting your data through an automated daily backups and on-demand controlled data recovery. As the leading cloud backup app trusted by over 80,000 organizations around the globe, Rewind has saved thousands of accounting professionals from mind-numbing manual data entry rework. To learn even more about Rewind and access a special offer just for listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash rewind. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash R-E-W-I-N-D. But as I said, it's a great time to be an accountant. Fantastic. Amazing. We've got all this technology that we can use. We've we've got amazing career opportunities. There's a talent shortage, which is great if you are a uh, an employee. Not so great if you're a firm owner. That's a big challenge for firm owners. But if you are just looking for a job as an accountant, it's fantastic. I've got a list of the best cities for accountants in 2021 in case folks are thinking about maybe relocating now that things are opening up again. Does Would it, you like... Does, what's okay, I'll let you do the list, but like in this world of cloud accounting, does this list matter? <laughs> well, so yes, uh, good point. The criteria for this list may or may not be relevant to you, depending on whether or not you want to work in the same city as your company or your firm. This list was created by Advisor Smith, and it ranks 363 metro areas in terms of how attractive they are to accounting pros based on three subcategories by size, small, midsize, and large. They use three criteria. There's the average accounting salary, the accounting jobs per capita, so per person, and the cost of living index. So those three things balanced give you the best cities for accountants. So where can I make the most money and I have the most job opportunity and I have the lowest cost of living kind of situation? So yes, if you're working completely remotely for a firm that's in a totally different city, this this doesn't apply. But if you want to work for a, a company that's uh, in the city, then that's a good place. So, so I'll just give you the number twos and the number one for each category. Okay. So number two, large city, Denver, average accounting salary of just about $86,000 and almost 24,000, more than 24,000 accounting jobs. Midsize city, number two, Springfield, Illinois, 
Number two, small city, Columbus, Indiana. Number one, large city, Birmingham, Alabama. They have an average accounting salary of 77000 which is less than Denver by like $10,000, but their cost of living is index is like 90.7. Cheaper to live there. Uh, best mid-sized city is Midland, Texas. I think that's the oil and gas stuff, right? That's why. And then the best small city is Parkersburg, West Virginia. Well, they really got deep on these cities. They mm-hmm. got very, very deep and, and they didn't stay with the big metropolitan areas. Uh, I, I, yeah. I've never even heard of some of these cities. So check out Parkersburg, West Virginia, Midland, Texas, and Birmingham, Alabama, if you're interested in living in the small, mid-sized, or best large city for accountants. Did you happen to see uh, the article from ProPublica about the secret IRS files? So I saw it. I kind of skimmed it. I didn't read it. I didn't look at the returns or the data. I just know that somebody at the IRS leaked these, were they tax returns? Yeah, so they, to quote them, they've obtained a vast trove of IRS revenue service data on the tax returns of thousands of the nation's wealthiest people covering more than 15 years. So they don't say who they got it from, but somehow they got it probably from somebody in the IRS. Mm-hmm. Um, they didn't print it for them because all the printers are broken. So I don't know how they <laughs> how this is delivered. They're out of ink, right? How so, they delivered this. Yeah, so what's your... What's your takeaway from all of this? I mean, there's a ton of stuff in here. I feel like the the news coverage has been all about the incredibly low effective tax rate that these folks pay, which will come as no surprise to anyone who knows anything about tax or does tax, right? If you're if you're in the capitalist class and you make most of your money from investments and from businesses you own, we know that you pay way less tax than wage earners. Like Warren Buffett, classic example, pays less tax than his secretary. And and I mean, unfortunately, the article is very uh, teasing about a series of articles they're going to release. Uh, I think that's the problem. So you you read this article because this, but this has all the clickbait in it. Jeff Bezos paid no taxes. Oh, neither did uh, um, Elon Musk. Oh, neither did billionaire Carl Icahn or George Soros or Michael Bloomberg. It's just, you name, you name the billionaire. They're going to be in this article for not paying tax. Right, including you said Warren Buffett. They're all listed in there. It's all the same game, you know. Oh, you know, they took a salary of a dollar, but it's teased. The article is teased as in like the se- the secret way they do or how the wealthiest avoid the income tax. But it really doesn't have what they actually do in this article. It's a tease for future articles they're going to write. The only takeaway I can really come from this article is there's a lot of a lot of them just take loans. So instead of getting income, you know to have some cash solvency. Yeah. You could just go get a loan for 1% from a bank because all your assets are growing at 30% a year. <laughs> there you go. And so they live just off these loans and then the loans in a way kind of are deductible and they show up other other expense and that's how they kind of do this. Yeah, it is. I, I, I wish they'd done a better job of explaining it. And it is, it is very, I don't know, deceptive. This chart here in the article that shows Buffett, Bezos, Bloomberg, and Musk in a row. And then it shows a column of their total income reported and their total taxes paid. And, you know, it doesn't look good that Jeff Bezos paid 0.98% in effective, you know, his effective tax rate. If you take his total taxes paid, divide it by his income reported. But it's like not fair because they're not, they're not, it's not like the taxable income reported. It's just the total income reported. So it's deceptive in that way. Um, 
it's a very long article. Obviously, we'll link to it in the short the show notes. Um, but it doesn't actually say what they're doing. Like the, the headline makes as a tease of what, oh, what the billionaires do to avoid paying taxes. Really what this article does, it just does a lot of stats of like, hey, look, the average worker is paying X percentage of their income or right. X percent as their net worth has only increased this much. They've still paid even higher amounts of taxes. Yeah. So, and, and, and it's the whole myth, right? The whole, the myth of the tax system, you know, and this is where I know uh, the 37% tax rate, right? They want to do for the rich or whatever we want to do, right? Right. It's great on paper. And in theory, yes, rich people should be paying more than their fair share of taxes. And it's, it's all great on paper, but it's not really happening. The reality is, is the average taxpayers paying the vast majority of taxes. And that's, <clears throat> you know, that's how it works in the, in the real world. Like, I, I don't know where I heard this and I'll try to find it for the next episode, but I heard a great quote or something that the difference between the United States and Europe, where, you know, in Europe they have much higher taxes, isn't that we tax the bit, the real difference isn't that we tax our, our rich less. Okay. It's that we tax our middle class way less Be- because most countries don't want to tax capital a lot because you want people with capital to invest it in new businesses to create more jobs and not leave your country. Right. Right. And and so that's why, like, I don't know the details of Jeff Bezos. I haven't dug into this data, but I'm just going to guess why he pays such a low tax rate is because he famously takes all the money that he makes from his various businesses and he drives that money back into those businesses to invest them. That's why Amazon classically was unprofitable for so many, many years, even though it had so much revenue. And of course, it also paid very little tax because we have incentives in the tax code where you dr- when you invest your money back into the business, you don't pay tax. And that's the, the, the whole that's the whole point, right? If you start taxing people on capital, they have less money to invest. I'm curious what our listeners think, if anyone really knows what's going on here. I mean, we have I know we have a lot of people who specialize in tax, who listen, who probably understand you know, what is happening here, I'd, I'd love to get your take. And you can reach out to me or David on LinkedIn, email us, you can leave us a voice message. Uh, maybe you can explain this in a couple minutes for our listeners. Our voicemail is 202-695-1040. That's 202-695-1040. Give us a call. Let us know what you think. And we got a voicemail this week. So I'm gonna go ahead and play that. Hey, guys. Uh, name is uh, Harry Gottlieb, CPA. So I've been doing financial accounting for about three, four years, mainly uh, in real estate, and uh, recently started working for my friend, opened a CPA firm in Brooklyn. I'm doing, quote-unquote, more like public accounting, getting to see different businesses and uh, working on taxes and PPP and all that good stuff. So we came across your podcast through a recommendation from a CPA on a group with a whole bunch of other CPAs, started listening to it, and I just want to say how much I love it. I'm hooked. You guys do a great job covering uh, all the recent news, changes, tech, um, and I love the humor in it as well, uh, particularly your coverage um, about the IRS funding issues was very, very informative, and your interview with the guy from the SCPA was great as well. I really like how you challenged him, and I enjoyed the back and forth, so I just want to say how much I enjoy it, keep up the great work, and I've been recommending it to fellow CPAs and will continue to do so. Good luck. Thank you. That's right. And I love to hear that people are recommending us to their fellow accounts and bookkeepers. Like that is probably the best way to help the show is to, if you like it, share it with your colleagues. Word of mouth, 
is still the number one way that accountants and bookkeepers get clients. And it's the number one way I believe that we get listeners. So thank you. Really appreciate that. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by CPA Charge. CPA Charge is the online payment solution designed specifically for the accounting industry, endorsed by more than 35 state CPA societies and the AICPA. Their solution makes it easy to accept credit card, debit card, and even e-check or ACH payments from your clients anytime, anywhere. Whether you prefer to accept payments in your office, through your website, or on the go with a mobile app, CPA Charge has you covered. Plus, CPA Charge has all the payment features you need to streamline your cash flow. Features such as applying a surcharge to credit card transactions, which are automatically displayed on your payment page as a separate line item. Or scheduled payments, where you can automatically charge your client's payment information at a date and time you both agree to, whether it's one time or a recurring bill. And with CPA Charge, there are no contracts and no setup or cancellation fees. As a cloud accounting podcast listener, you'll get six months of no monthly fee if you open your account by June 30th. To take advantage of this offer and sign up for a demo, head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash CPA Charge. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash CPA C-H-A-R-G-E. CPA Charge, online payments designed for CPA firms. So can you, so I guess I have a question because obviously ProPublica did not have exactly how they, how the rich do this, right? The, the 0.0001% the billionaires do this. They kind of have a, a sentence in this article how they're still analyzing the data, but we haven't, but they haven't figured it out yet. So is there only so much you can do from a tax return anyways? Like, are we actually going to understand how they, I'm not going to say hide income is not the right term, but how they have such low income to report or pay taxes on, right? Yeah. Well, can you figure is- that out from the tax return and work backwards? Do you need to take a look at all their business entities and all their profit and losses and money movement between different entities? Like, how do you, like, is, can Pro publicly even reveal these secrets, I guess is what I'm saying. I, pro- I mean, it'd be very difficult. That's probably why they haven't done it yet, right? Like you'd have to dig in and create this entity map that shows all the entities and all the mo- money flowing around between them. And But like the short story is that they're what they're doing is deceptive because they're, they're emphasizing how much the wealth of these people grew. But the, we don't tax unrealized gains. Like if, if Jeff Bezos's wealth grows $99 billion and he only paid $973 million in taxes, there's a very good reason for that if he, if he keeps it invested. And that's that. And this is this whole, this is, even though it seems like it's not fair, well, he's a bajillionaire. But if you and I have, we have a little bit of gains in the, the stock market went up a little bit. Maybe our 401ks grew a little bit. Yeah. We don't want to get taxed on our little bit of gain. Exactly. And that's the conversation that has been going on with like tax Twitter is like, yeah, if you, if you change these laws to get the rich, you're going to, you're going to create lots of problems for the middle class too, because taxing unrealized capital gains as Oregon Senator Ron Wyden wants to do. I mean, Elizabeth Warren wants to do that. Bernie Sanders wants to do that. That's the definition of a wealth tax, basically you could create some real, real problems for everybody and bad incentives. So that's the thing is like, we we want these guys to keep their money in the market. We want them to keep investing in businesses, right? 
it's like they fundamentally don't understand economics or they just don't care, right? I, I, anyway, well, let's save this for another uh, time when we have more time. Well, well eventually them. they're going to, you know, they say months from now, they're going to reveal these secrets. But right. I, 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 do, I do feel like this is like a clickbait from ProPublica. <laughs> I don't think we're going to actually get the real secrets exposed. Well, on a lighter note, did you know there was a Microsoft Excel esports tournament that <laughs> that happened? Wait, time out, time out. Okay, let's back up. Okay, so there's Microsoft Excel, and there's this thing called esports. And when I think esports, you know, it's guys wearing, you know, jogging shirts to some extent, you know, and they have headbands on, and they're playing Call of Duty. They're playing some sort of yeah. video game. So you're saying somebody put that with Excel, and they had a baby, and it's a Microsoft Excel esports event? Yeah, Microsoft, the Twitter account for Microsoft Excel partnered up with the Financial Modeling World Cup, which has been a thing for a few years now, to live stream a multiplayer battle of eight (laughs) financial modelers from eight countries on the 8th of June live doing a case study. So like they got a, a case study from the website, download it. It's all this like Excel spreadsheets that they then have to figure out how to use to answer a bunch of questions in the case study. And this was live streamed was what was the yeah. audience yeah. Did that millions tune in. So on, you can actually watch it on YouTube and you can dig that out of the show notes. But if we don't have that um, up, just go ahead and search for uh, financial modeling world cup on YouTube and you'll find it. The live stream that is now available on demand got 152,000 views. Now, now was it just like a raw feed or did they have some production with their announcers? Yeah, no, they got two, they got two people from Microsoft who apparently set this up to be the announcers. And so, you know, they're just like in a esports game, they're in corners of the screen talking about what they're watching and they can switch around to the eight different competitors and see their screens. All right, I'm going to ask you to clip that in. I want I want to just hear the two commentators because I can't even imagine what they talked about. So maybe you could drop a little clip in here of the commentators talking to each other about their watching of somebody use Excel. All right, here you go. Here is the uh, clip from the Financial Modeling World Cup that live streamed on June 8th. So uh, we're getting down to the wire now. It's starting to get really exciting. So we might jump over and have a look at the last two participants. Jason, um, have a look at Jason Weber's screen and jump in to see how Jason is. uh, Okay. Okay. Oh, not looking too good at the moment. Okay. Don't panic. It is obviously, (laughs) it's probably just one thing that's gone wrong. He's um, he's doing all right. It definitely makes you nervous when you suddenly have like errors across your entire worksheet. And it's like, what did I do? Come on, Stephanie. Danielle, I will say coming into this, I kind of thought there would be like one person who would just like pull ahead and blow everyone away. Uh But as you just pointed out, right, the scoring has really tightened up. So some folks who I think were behind by 200 points, they're now within 100, within 75 points, really feels to me like they're within striking range. As you pointed out, we're now looking at Stephanie, who's a little bit behind in points, but I think she's just doubled. She was down in the 100, she's now pushing into the 200s. It feels like her model's starting to come together. 
Yeah, yeah, they know that they, um, we, we've got about four minutes to go. So we are really, uh, they know that now is the time. Now is the time to uh, be putting in their answers. You know, it's, it's now or never. That was pretty awesome. So speaking of awesome, should we jump into our app news? Let's talk about it. So there's actually an app called Awesome with a capital O, O-S-O-M-E. We've talked about this before. We've talked about them before. They just had another round. They took uh, $60 million and they are essentially, their core offering is online accounting services, um, but they're really doubling down on e-commerce, right? These things that can be automated. And so they'll take over the documents starting from your paper documents or whatever's downloaded from your e-commerce services, right? Converted into quote unquote actionable numbers, tax filings reports, making accounting bookkeeping services for online sellers as simple as ever. So there's just another player looking to automate accounting uh, with these things. So they just hold, hold on one second. I just want to make sure I'm clear. So these guys are like, uh, they are a bookkeeping company or an accounting company that do they have their own software? I think they have their own software. So they're, okay. they're another accounting firm with engineers. Okay. Is what I think about this. They started in Singapore and Hong Kong, and then now they've kind of started to penetrate the UK market. But it's definitely an e they, They're very focused on e-commerce because this is what we've talked about. If you're going to try to build one of these scalable firms, you really have to go really, really niche. And you said they raised a bunch of money now? They raised another $16 million. $16 yeah. million Series A. Gotcha. Now, this does not say anything like how many customers they already have or anything like that uh, in this article here, but there's just a, it's another accounting firm of engineers. I mean, every, every week there's another one. I found something in this, I found a TechCrunch article that says that their total funding is now 24.5 million. They've been around since 2017. They claim to be used by 6,000 companies in Singapore, the United Kingdom and Hong Kong with 9.5 million in annual recurring revenue and 100% year-over-year revenue growth. Wow, that's uh, pretty good numbers they're p- putting up there. I see the 6,000 number here as well. So, Because we yeah. talked about Bench last week. Bench said they had 11,000. They say they employ 200 people. And you said they specialize in e-commerce. So that kind of makes sense, right? Because e-commerce accounting is really hard if they've built the software that can make that easier then there's a lot of value they could capture there. And I think Bench talked about that. Like that's a little bit of their focus. It's starting to feel like there's a shift of these companies, of these accounting firms and engineers to e-commerce. Because the data is already electronic and this all makes sense, right? In theory, if, yeah. if there's any industry you're going to 100% automate, it probably should be e-commerce. So you said they're in Asia or they came, they started in Asia in Hong Kong, Singapore, Singapore, Hong Kong, and then the UK. So I imagine I, my guess is they're built on zero. I haven't seen anything, but that would just be my guess. I think they are because it says they're a zero platinum partner on their website. Oh, they're I, built saw, on zero. I saw one of the logos, another accounting startup uh, with engineers raised $18.3 million. We've talked about Penny Lane before on the show. They've raised another New funding round, eighteen point three million. They are out of France. A, is this a French company? That's what I said, a French company, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. And and Sequoia Capital invested in this round. It's their first investment in France after announcing ambitious expansion plans in Europe. And these guys are very similar to Awesome in that they offer both accounting services and an accounting platform. 
and they're focused on small and medium companies. They've attracted hundreds of clients. It says 1,000 executives are currently using Penny Lane. I thought that was an interesting metric. 1,000 executives. Why not 1,000 businesses? Maybe they're counting some businesses more than once if they have multiple executives. A little marketing game going on there, I feel like. What's interesting about Penny Lane, it looks like they actually seem to be partnering with accounting firms. They say that they have 100 accounting firms that could handle the accounting tasks for you. So instead of having in-house bookkeepers and accountants, it looks like they're playing middleman, possibly. Oh, interesting. Yeah, it says here that they work with 100 accounting firms and can handle accounting tasks for you. And they will also connect their business users with an accountant. And they'll leverage your Penny Lane data to complete their work. So they want to be a middleman or a platform that connects both accountants and uh, and the end user, the, the business. And they want to be the financial operating system for small business, it says, which, you know, I think everybody says that, that now, right? Saying, everybody says that now, yeah. People <laughs> saying that five, six years ago. Um, yeah. The... So uh, one of the things I've noticed this year that has been very interesting is the celebrities getting into investing in accounting startups. So did that happen again this week? Another new celebrity? It did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So help me remember, uh, Bezos invested in Pilot. Ashton Kutcher invested in something. Now we can add Mark Cuban to the list. Mark Cuban is backing personal finance app Dave to go public in a $4 billion SPAC deal. So he actually was already, I think, invested. And Dave's one of these neobanks, right? Yes. It's okay. a Yeah, it's a banking app. So budgeting tools, banking tools for uh, consumers, B2C. And this is um, through, I, I thought this was interesting because it, it's through a SPAC. So a special purpose acquisition company that is backed by Victory Park Capital, uh, which is backed by Mark Cuban. So it's his one of his SPACs. And so they are going to do an acquisition and that's how Dave is going to go public. Uh, and I, I thought this caught my attention because I've been paying a lot of attention to SPACs. And I actually have some some interesting accounting-related SPAC news that I dug up um, when when the whole SPAC thing like sort of melted down or slowed down. I mean, it hasn't stopped altogether, obviously, but there have been some big problems for SPACs. And it actually has to do with accounting, the way the SEC is, is making them treat accounting. Um, so we don't have to go into that now, but I, I do want to hit on that after we go into the app news. We could touch on that. I only have one other uh, quick app news that I saw. Um, so Stripe, remember we talked mm -hmm. about how Stripe bought TaxJar two months ago? Yes. Well, they quickly rebranded this and released it now. It's called Stripe Tax. So it's been rebranded, re-released. And apparently they've been beta testing it for six months. So they must have been working with TaxJar on creating like a, a white labeled solution for Stripe. And then obviously during that process, Stripe just bought them and launch this product pretty fast. Had it ready to go. Had yeah, it yeah it was, it's because who acquires a company and two months later launches a product <laughs> that's completely rebranded? Yeah. It's just, nobody goes that fast. So, um, should we hit on the SPAC stuff? Yeah. This episode of the Cloud Accounting Podcast is sponsored by Odoo. Do you have a client that has outgrown QuickBooks or Zero? Or do you have a client that is still in QuickBooks Desktop Enterprise Edition because all the current cloud accounting offerings lack the depth of features and controls that your clients need? Or maybe you have a client with legacy desktop ERP system and they are ready to move to the cloud. Let me introduce you to Odoo. 
Odoo is a highly customizable cloud ERP system with everything your clients need, including dozens of built-in app modules and thousands of third-party apps. The accounting and invoicing modules are always free, so there's no reason not to give Odoo a try today. Head over to cloudaccountingpodcast.promo slash Odoo. That is cloudaccountingpodcast.promo forward slash O-D-O-O. So let's talk about SPACs quickly. Uh, well, maybe not quickly. <laughs> it is a little complicated. Uh, so backing up, backing up, backing up. Um, I was hearing tons about SPACs all through basically January, February, March. It was huge, right? Dozens and dozens of SPAC IPOs each month. Can we rewind a little bit even further, like what a SPAC is? So a SPAC is also known as a blank check company. Uh, let's say you are Mark Cuban and you want to go raise a bunch of money so you can buy companies. You can do that through a SPAC. You get a bunch of investors together. Uh, they all put money into this basically shell company. You then, uh, and, and the SPAC's a public company, right? So you can go get money from the market so people can buy stock in your SPAC. So even though you have no business, you have nothing going on, it's just a, a shell so, company. So, so I have a shell company that yeah. I could another company could buy. And because I'm already an established company, maybe, maybe, maybe it's a foreign company that wants to go public, but it's really hard to go public. A lot of things have to happen. They could just pretty much buy my company and then make an offering under that company. I'm already listed or not. Right? You're already listed. So like another way to think about it, it's just like a bag of money. That's what a SPAC is. It's just a bag of money. So you get a bunch of people and it's a public bag of money. So you get a bunch of people in the public markets to just buy your stock Right. You, now you have a ridiculous amount of money. You have like billions of dollars. And now you just take that bag of money and you go around and you look for companies, private companies to buy. And those private companies get the benefit of going public without all the hassle because you've already done it. Right. You're, it's a merger situation uh, and less scrutiny. Well, that was the idea is that it was easier to go public. The SEC has kind of put a damper on all this after SPACs exploded in Q1 in April, they just stopped pretty much. I mean, we went from 109 SPAC IPOs in March to 10 in April. And the reason is that the SEC said, uh, and it was, it was basically too good to be true. The SEC comes by and says, hey guys, you know, you can't just use this maneuver to escape all the scrutiny. There's a reason that we have IPOs and there's a process and it's hard. It's to protect investors. And the thing that they specifically pushed back on was this idea of uh, how warrants are being treated, stock warrants. So these are like the sweeteners for the organizers of the SPAC. SEC came in and said, guys, you can't treat these as... So I'm trying to think out loud here, like with normally in an IPO, right? You're partnering with somebody like Goldman Sachs or some, some company like that. And they make a ton of extra money by playing the offering company, right? They, they, they're they in the game, they're hands in the pot, they come out of the, an IPO with billion, millions and millions of dollars, right? By being that final player. That, yeah, that, they said they make the market, right? They, they, the they, market, right? they say, we're going to buy this much of it, and then they go out and they sell the rest of it to the public market. And those guys, in a way, run, they're, they're involved in the SEC and back and forth. It's like the, uh, you talk the accounting industrial con, uh, complex with the PCAOB, right? It's kind of like the same people their buddies are in the SEC, their buddies are here, they're going back and forth. Now, do SPACs completely bypass the system and that's why they're locking down, down on this? I mean, not like, completely. People are not getting their piece of the pie now because of the SPAC system? 
it, it's not compl- it's not completely, but it's like less scrutiny, and you can be more aggressive w- with spec. So, like for instance, when you're doing an IPO, you're not allowed to issue forward looking guidance. All right, so now I can understand like why. Yeah, they're bypassing the entire system and why people are getting upset about this. It's a, yeah, it's a loophole. It's a backdoor, you know, something like that. And so, I mean, it would have been crazy, I think, if the SEC hadn't started to crack down on this. Um, and so what happened is um, the SEC said that warrants issued to investors in such in, in SPACs are not considered equity instruments and should be considered liabilities measured at fair value on a company's books. And so all of these companies then that went and measured them as equity instruments had to go back and remeasure them as liabilities and reissue financial statements. And like, that's a huge hassle for those companies. It's a huge hassle for the accountants. And I was wondering like, who's doing these SPAC deals? And there was a story on Bloomberg tax about the firms that are doing SPACs or that have been. The, it's not been the big four. PwC only did one SPAC in 2020, Grant Thornton three, KPMG seven, other firms eight. The vast majority of SPACs were done by two mid-market accounting firms. Markham LLP did 91 of them, and Witham, Smith, and Brown did 138. So I I wonder, <laughs> you know, like when when the SPAC tide turned against SPACs, or you know, when the SEC made the this announcement, like, did that uh is that going to like screw things up over there, right? Because they, you know, now they have to go back and tell their clients, oh, sorry, it's not as easy as we pitched you, <laughs> right? It's not as great. We have to go back and reissue your financial statements. It's going to be more expensive for you. You know, maybe there. are Those just ratios what... to be that concentrated with two firms smells of bubble and smells like it's very dangerous for one of those two right? firms if something goes wrong with this. Right? Yeah, so many of them. So I'm curious. I'm curious what happened. Because I'm sure I heard you correctly. Of the big four, in total, they've done six? Like eight? Eight. Or something, or like uh, no more than a few dozen. And the other ones have done over 200, 200 something? Between yeah. two firms. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. It's like if you look at the pie chart, it's like a tiny little sliver that's any firm other than Markham or Witham, Smith, and Brown. So that was my SPAC news. I don't know how. I, I I don't know if I did a great job explaining it, but yeah, basically it's not the it's not the magic trick that people thought it was. And like how could it be? The SEC might be slow, but they're not idiots. They're gonna figure it out and stop it, put a stop to it at some point. I wonder if it's just putting those two firms at risk like an unnecessary risk. It just feels like, like, like when you see that it's like a defect, right? When you see a number like numbers like that, there's something not adding up correctly. Now, here's the other thing about SPACs. They have to, by the rules built into their charters or whatever, they have to find a deal. It, you can't just create a SPAC and then take all these people's money and then never spend it or just spend it on yourself, right? You got to go find a company to acquire. And if you can't, within a certain timeline, a certain de- by a certain deadline, you have to return the money to your investors. And so there's this game of musical chairs that is starting to happen where you've got all these SPACs with all this money looking for companies to invest in. So there's all this pressure now for the SPACs to invest. So is that going to be good for the investors in SPACs when, you know, I'm just, I've got my SPAC and I'm looking around looking for investments and I got to take maybe one that's not so great because I have to, otherwise I don't get my warrants, right? I don't get my payout if I don't find a deal. There's like a ton of money floating around there looking to acquire businesses. And so that might be a problem. Some people are calling it the specopalypse, I think. <laughs> Spac, specopalypse. Um, yeah, the ticking time bomb for specs. Hard to find quality mergers, you know, when 
a lot of these companies are already um, finding deals. And and then the SPACs that have happened have not done so great. That's the other issue. That's putting more pressure. We'll just have to watch that, that space and see. But my gut instinct is based on the out of balance ratios of just those two firms tells me other firms are either not touching this on purpose or maybe it's just a missed opportunity. It can be that simple. Like every other firm's like, well, I'm thinking it's going to be something real or these two firms are possibly doing something that maybe that they're graying the waters themselves. I don't know. Maybe it, did they see an opportunity that nobody else saw or are they doing something that everybody else was like, I don't think that's a great idea. <laughs> yeah. Uh, time will tell. Friend of the show, Amanda Yard. She uh, took a job. She now is the COO of Paget Business Services. She is now the COO and she'll be in charge of like all the operational and logistical guidance for all the network of the Paget franchisees. Uh, yeah, tell me about Paget. Like, so we we heard about Paget because Jeff Phillips, who used to run Accounting Flyer, still does, took on the CEO role over yes. there, uh, like last year, I think. So Paget Business Services, what are they? It is a franchise of accounting firms. And I think it's about 200 firms. It might be as high as 300. I'm not 100% sure on the size. This article doesn't actually say. And so it's a franchise model. And just like with all franchise models, you usually have you know, the franchise corporate entity gives you the tools and resources you need to run the franchise. It justify the McDonald's or Burger mm-hmm. King or whatever else I have. And so essentially... In this role, you know, Amanda would be determining what accounting software stack they use, what apps they use, right? How they're going to roll those apps out to their clients, how they're going to train their clients, right? Or or train their staff to support their clients. So I've talked a lot about how, well, my view of the current environment, the current economic environment, the current job market is that our economy is going to boom, right? Because we had all this stimulus, but we don't have enough workers and We've cut, we've cut all of our, we cut a lot of our immigration, right? And, and our guest worker visas and all that stuff. So like, we definitely aren't going to have enough workers. So, you know, I'm very bullish on technology investments. And I saw an article in the Wall Street Journal that bolstered that view. The headline is technology fills the gap as jobs lag GDP. Pandemic labor shortages drive businesses to boost productivity with digital investments. And there's some great charts in this story showing gross domestic product rebounding from February of 2020 and non-farm payrolls just sort of like creeping up, uh, not being able to keep up with that line. Software investment is way up. Now, a lot of that was due to remote work, not necessarily being unable to um, hire workers, but I think it's just going to keep going because when you can't hire workers, what do you do? You got to automate, right? You got to make your existing workers more effective, more efficient. And there's a great example here of how that is playing out. Silver Diner Development operates 20 restaurants throughout the Washington, D.C. region. During the pandemic, takeout went from 20% of their business to 80% of their business. They implemented a tool called Card Free to streamline the takeout process. It enabled customers to pay by text or by scanning a QR code with their phone. So that meant that they took a two to three trip process to deliver curbside and do it in one trip. They could just bring the food out and the customer could pay using their phone. That saved them a lot on labor. Now they don't want to reduce staff, but as restrictions are lifted, their takeout has dropped back to 30 or 40% of orders. So they've got 
people in the restaurants and they're having trouble fully staffing the restaurants. They had a good experience with card free. So now they are looking at ways to quote, we'll do more sales with the same level of people, unquote. So that means at the restaurant, making it so that servers can take orders on mobile devices, people can pay with their mobile device at the tables. And I've seen this personally happening at a lot of restaurants now where you go in and there might be a servers coming around, but you also have the second option of using your phone to order food directly from the kitchen and people will bring it out. I don't know if you've been to any of those kind of places, but yeah, it's so really I've been interesting. Some in, in here in New York City, any restaurants I've been at so far, you take a photo of the barcode, you take a photo of the barcode on the table, the QR code, you know, it takes you to a website, then you click another button, then it opens up a PDF of the menu. Um, now, some I have been at where you actually order right from your device. Um, I've seen uh, situations like that. I'm mixed about that. I, if, I'm, if I'm there and I'm ordering from my phone, I must well just not be there. What? I just order from my phone. I think it takes away some level of service of going to a restaurant. The the waiter or uh, waitress come over and giving you, you know, the specials of the day and there's an experience you're missing. And some of that but, experience is no. a paper menu, right? And, and mm. going through it and leaning over to the person next to you and looking at the paper menu versus all four of you opening up your cell phones and clicking a virtual menu. I Obviously, technology is going to fill this gap, though. There's just not enough people going to work. Uh, going to work is probably the easiest way to say it. But even in Arizona, like I think Arizona announced they're going to pay people on your third paycheck $2,000 if you go get a job. I, you have a really good point, David. There is an element of experience that we are going to lose when we automate. And this is true, not just in a restaurant. This is also true in an accounting firm. And so figuring out how to still create a good experience while using automation is the secret. Like If you can get both, if you can get people to have a good experience while you are leveraging automation to reduce your headcount, then you're going to be successful because you're creating a lot of value. So maybe with restaurants, you know, you'll get to this point where, well, okay, David, you know, it isn't always great to have a server. Like a lot of times they suck, right? They're terrible and they don't create any value and they just are slow. And, you know, you, you, you don't really want to talk to them. You just want them to come take your order. Or you ask like, what's your recommendation? And they like can't recommend anything, even though they work at this place. So like maybe some restaurants will continue to have that high service and will pay for it. But most that we go to won't. Well, and I think maybe, maybe it's tears, right? You think about... You see this a lot with the, the Italian restaurants, especially back east sometimes. They'll, they'll have kind of the drive-up takeout window for pickup pizza to go. They'll kind of have the the red and white striped tablecloths for people that just want to go in and get a quick slice of pizza and sit down. Mm-hmm. But then there's a second part of the restaurant that has white tablecloths for people that want to have a nice, longer mm-hmm. spaghetti dinner, the full nine yards with wine, et cetera. But it's the same restaurant. Right, they right. just have three different levels of service they provide. Oh, I like right? that. And then maybe that's, as you think about your clients, like how do, you, how do you, some clients may just want the high tech don't talk to me version, the quick one. Yeah. And someone may want the full service experience, but you need to price it. You can't, you have to figure out those clients and then price to that. You just can't have one flat fee and give people the full service if they're not. That That is a great analogy, David. And it makes so much sense. And like, this is one of the things I don't like about when people talk about advisory in accounting and moving away from compliance. Like there are lots of great firms that have really good compliance businesses and it's down to a science, right? And and they they churn out those returns and the clients are happy. And it's like, for them, it doesn't make sense uh, to drop that. Why would you abandon a successful business that makes people happy? It's like, you know, if, if you've got a good uh, business running a burger joint, 
where you don't have a lot of service, like personalized service. You're just people come in, they order off the menu and you give them a burger and they're happy, right? Like that's a good business. You don't have to go make it a white table cloth restaurant, but maybe you could add that in the back as an option, right? Or add a, add a part of the restaurant where people can sit down and you can go up and give them more personal service. So you could have both. I think that's all I have this week. David, it's been a pleasure as always. And I hope you have a great rest of your week in New York City. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, where can they do that? The easiest way is I'm on all the socials. I'm at David Leary. I am at Blake T. Oliver. That's all the time we have for this week. David, have fun in New York. Uh, I hear I hear the, the party scene on the rooftop decks, uh, rooftop bars. It's pretty great. Well, it's 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 starting. They, they, to, to the bars, I think, still you have to prove you're vaccinated to, to go into a bar. I think that part's not fully open yet, but it's, but just silly because the rooftops are wide open. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> uh, see you Wait, later. Yeah, bye. Bye. Time for the classifieds. If you're looking to fast track a scalable seven-figure accounting firm without having to work a million hours a week, check out Ryan Lozanis' online coaching membership, Future Firm Accelerate. The Future Firm Accelerate program is designed around Ryan's experience of taking his own cloud firm from scratch to sale so that you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You'll get online learning and topics that help you automate and systemize all aspects of your firm, coaching when you need help with implementation, and you'll also join a collaborative community of hundreds of other forward-thinking accounting firm owners. For more details, head over to www.futurefirmaccelerate.com. That is futurefirmaccelerate.com. Are you an accountant or bookkeeper who wants to get the most out of Zero? Zero, a comprehensive guide for accountants and bookkeepers is available now. Author Amanda Aguilar shares eight years of experience using Zero in her own practice to connect the dots between accounting theory and software. See why Zero founder Rod Drury calls her a proven expert in getting the most out of the Zero platform and ecosystem. Buy it now on Amazon or through your local bookseller. I quickly wanted to let you know about a new project that I've been working on for the last year or so. I'm launching a podcast network called Accounting Podcast Network. It has new podcasts that I know you'll love, like the Accounting Salon Conversations podcast hosted by Amanda Aguilar and the Accounting Automation Workflows podcast co-hosted by Brian Clare and Heather Satterley. Head over to accountingpodcastnetwork.com. That's accountingpodcastnetwork.com. Want to get the word out about your newsletter, webinar, party, Facebook group, podcast, ebook, job posting, or that fancy Excel macro you just created? Why not let the listeners of the Cloud Accounting Podcast know by running a classified ad? Hit the show notes for the link to get more info.